Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. Today I had the opportunity to visit with Jim Weeks. He and his wife Carrie live in Safford, Arizona, and he will be 81 years old in August. He was raised around the Grand Canyon. Um, He and his family moved there when he was about five. On the first day there, he ran away from home and ended up at the Mule Barn, and that's how he got involved in this kind of culture. He and his wife Carrie have been married for 62 years. When he first started shoeing horses, he would shoe them for $5 a head, and he would furnish the shoes. When asked about advice he has for future generations, he says, get out, learn how to work, do chores, and go to church. I hope that you enjoy listening to the full episode. Um, And just like always, to put a face behind the name, you can check out our Instagram page, which is at cowboystories underscore podcast. And I apologize that this episode is so late getting out to you all, but I hope you enjoy. First of all, I guess start out with I'm 81 years old this this August, and I was raised uh, at the Grand Canyon. We moved to the Grand Canyon when I was approximately five years old, and I ran away from home the first day and ended up down the mule barn, and there was no time cowboys sitting out there in front of the mule barns. His name was Shorty Yarbury. And he looked at me and I was peeking around the corner and he says, come on in here, Tater, and talk to me. Well, that started it all off. I spent <laughs> I spent about all the way through high school there and there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't down at the mule barn either talking to the cowboys or helping them out or doing whatever I can. And my mother was real ill for a number of years. And my dad worked at night. He was a baggage man and a Wells Fargo agent. Uh, carried, so was that kind of what took your family to the Grand Canyon? Yes. Uh, okay. And uh, so I was farmed out of um, uh different ranchers, wives kind of took me in and because my mom was in and out of hospitals quite a bit. So I was, I had a, a quite a few people played a big hand in raising me and uh, my my love was on the ranch and the horseback and mules. Uh, I think the, the different cowboys that I'd was raised by um, a lot of them were just old single cowboys that that's all they knew and they'd come to the Grand Canyon and for instance Raymond Hope he was uh, worked for Babbitt Ranch for years and years and years and he said that he wasn't going to go a poor wagon any longer he was going to come and retired guiding mule dudes on the Grand Canyon. Well, he only lasted three days. The third day, he had a, a dude that wasn't sitting straight on the saddle, and he told him, says, you've got to sit straight on that saddle, or are you going to soar back that mule? 
they got down to the first cinch up where they the cowboy the guide would get out and go back and check all the cinches and everything. And that old boy was leaning off to one side and Raymond just jerked them all way off the mule and went to beating on him and of course he got fired. Oh, he went back to Babbitt's and that's where he he stayed on the Babbitt branches till <laughs> he went into the rest home or, and mm. uh there <clears throat> Jack Harvison was an old homesteader and worked for Babbitt Ranch and uh was ended up being the head honcho with the mules. And when he retired, uh, we had a, another cowboy. He was originally from Colorado. His name was Jay Goza. And he took over the mule's boss. And I uh, spent a lot of time in the blacksmith shop there. Dick Muller, he was the blacksmith. And Walt Pruitt was the shoer. And Dick Muller tried and tried and tried to get me interested in working the forge and the metal and learn tempering. But all I wanted to do was learn how to shoe a mule, which I did. I learned how, and I, I shot horses up till about two years ago, I think was the last time I shot, maybe three years ago, the last oh, wow. time I shot a horse. But... uh I uh oh I was probably about nine or ten. I stole a horseshoe and hammer from the bucket there that they kept their tools in. And about fifteen years later, I seen Walt Pruitt in Prescott. I said, "Well, I got something of yours." He says, "What?" You mean that horseshoe and hammer that I gave you those years ago? <laughs> he did it all the time. He did. But uh, I still have that horseshoe and hammer. Uh, it's over 50 years old. That's cool. And he's the one that taught you how to do it. Yes. Yes. Walt was the main shoer. And then there was Shorty Arbor. Like I said, he was an old timer. He come with the first drive into Arizona from Texas with cattle drive. He came with the hash knives when they made the first drive. Uh, he was a character. He had almost every bone in his body broken by mules. He hired out breaking mules and packing and and they tell me all those rock corrals down there and Phantom Ranch, he built himself, and uh, a lot of those cottonwood trees down in there he planted years ago. But he was, he was a really a neat, neat guy. Uh, we had movies twice a week, Wednesdays and Saturdays. Shorty, he, he. Whenever he went out of the out that night, he probably half snockered, but he'd always wear his chihuahua spurs and his wild rag and, and a six shooter. Well, he went to the movie house there, and it was just a community building. They had they just put up the iron chairs to sit in, and and uh, it was a John Wayne movie. No shorty, he'd always smoke a cigar, so they made him sit in the hallway there in the back <laughs> and he was this Indian was getting ready to shoot John Wayne with bow and arrow oh, Shorty just reached up there and shot that Indian with his 45 everybody in the whole audience just chairs went flying everywhere else <laughs> didn't know what the world was going on so they made Shorty much they made Shorty uh, leave a six-shooter at the house on every <laughs> movie. After shooting the screen at the movie yeah, house? Yeah, <laughs> shot the screen, shot that ending. Uh, <laughs> That's I, funny. 
I guess if I want to give people some credit, I need the credit. Bud Dunnigan, he was a deputy sheriff, but he's hired out as a a guide. And then when they had a new sheriff, they hired him. Bud was really instant. He he was all the kids' idol. I mean, everybody looked at Bud as an idol. He had his horses out there at, at the 111 bar. And one day, Bud come by and picked me up. And I said, let's go get that. He had a Shetland pony. He said, let's go get that Shetland pony. And I said, okay, well, we're going to haul it in. He said, in this car. So we got out there and took the back seat out of the patrol. <laughs> Put that pony in that back seat, and we went to town, and we give every kid in the village a ride on that. Yeah, <laughs> doing that two or three times, but that that was kind of. But you never knew he would have been a deputy sheriff. And he carried a gun in in the car, and he never did take it out unless he was going to need it. He thought, figured he'd always. But just plain old cowboy, and that he treated everybody with total respect. And he uh, he retired from the sheriff's office. And he, as far as I know, he might still be alive there in Williams. Hmm. Uh, I had a I had great honors of, of knowing them old timers. Uh, you know, Jack Harvison, like I said, he. He originally homesteaded a place there on that Babbitt's homes now, and they call it the Harvison Camp. And, and new Buster Hope and John, I mean, Raymond Hope, they were all old cowboys, and I mean, good cowboys. They, uh, they didn't get, too, get along too good in vehicles, but Raymond, <laughs> he'd come to town and Studebaker pickup. And put it in third gear, and that's why it, it stayed. He never did shift it up or shift it down. It just stayed in third gear. And he was <laughs> always testing out because no power. But uh, then I, when I left the Grand Canyon, I'm sure I'm leaving some good, good information out. But when I left Grand Canyon, I moved to Winslow. And, and went to work different outfits and got married to my wife. Uh, uh, we've been married 62 years and still living together. We're not, we're not awesome. yet. <laughs> but, uh, Good for you, too. Uh, we worked next to one of the, one of the original Hash Knife. Uh, bosses. He had the branch next to the one we was working on. I was working on the GM outfit. When you went to Winslow? Out of Winslow, yeah. It's okay. Originally, a, a ranch at the Budweiser, I understood, bought it and built the house and built us Olympic-sized swimming pool in front. I don't think it ever had water in it except for rainwater. <laughs> and, uh, oh. But Bill Warwick was the wagon boss, cow boss for the hash knife, and his dad was named Bill Warwick. He was the general manager for the hash knives, and just all kinds of history. And I had the privilege of working cattle with them. I mean, just outstanding the old the old way. Uh, we we inherited the cattle during ground up. What we did there's three there's two boys Charlie and Bill, and then Bill the the old man. But we'd go out and had three different brands. Plus, I had a couple cows got over on on them. But we'd go out there and gather and throw them up against the fence and. One person would go in there and cut brand out. We'd bring them to the crowd. 
and uh, brand that bunch and go back and get another set of brands and brand them in there after mothering them up and, and brand them. But then we day herd them for five, six days. Get them bulls, breed them cows. Bill said, you know, you work cows, that bring them in season. And uh, them bulls had a chance to uh, breed them cows that way. And evidently it was true because he he always had 100% calf crop. Never, <laughs> I never did know how, I mean, anybody else to have that kind of. And then from the GM outfit, I worked for John Thompson. Uh, he was a rancher there out of Winslow. He was a single man uh, on the can, Colorado River. Yeah. Can I can I back up just for sure. one second, really quick? So, so, um, if I'm understanding right, so when you were little and you ran away from home, and you ended up at the mule barn, that's kind of what got you going in this kind of lifestyle. Like that's what got you interested in it. So then, so then from there, like, how did you get, how did you go from, from the mule barn, like taking dudes for rides and stuff? How did you get involved in like the ranching part okay. of that? Well, Jess Newman's wife, they was running the 10X ranch and my mom was in the hospital for, uh, and I, they just kind of took me and I spent over five months living with them. And then Bill Zellerman and his wife, which was, they were running a hunter living bar. Uh, they took me in and spent a, a few months with them. And I was just a button kid, but they, uh, Shorty Yarbury gave me a saddle and I think Walt Hood gave me a pair of shaps and Bill Zinnerman gave me a hat and <laughs> and and that's and I that's that was the way I lived for about six years. Uh, I had in the winter months when I had to go to school. We lived in a duplex, and my next door neighbor she took me under the wing, and my dad worked night, so I. Uh, she would make sure I got in the house and went, did my schoolwork and stuff like that. But she was a leather worker and she taught me how to tool leather. And that was a, I still tool leather. And, That's uh, cool. Uh, but, uh, so you just had a bunch of different influences throughout your I, life that kind of helped. I sure did. Art. I sure did. And I couldn't. Put a number one over number two. I mean, they were just all. That's the way the, the people were back then. I, I mean, they they didn't think nothing of it, stepping in and helping somebody. And there was a lot of kids that were helped by Bud Dunnigan and by Shorty Yarbury. Like I'd saying earlier about the movie house. I think it cost us a quarter to get in. And Shorty lived in the dormitory, the cowboy dorm downstairs. And Tuesdays and Saturdays night, there there could be fifteen or maybe twenty kids standing there at the window. And Shorty would take the string off and, and give them each fifty cents uh, to go to the movie house and, and uh, to buy some popcorn. But you know they. That was community. They just raised everybody. Yeah. It, it was really, really neat. Too bad we don't do that more often. I know. I really like listening to stories like that because it just shows you how, I don't know, how great it could be to to be surrounded we, by people who really cared about you everywhere you went. That's true. We, uh, we tried to carry that tradition out because... While we was on ranches, we 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 went to town and people knew we was out there and we was young and and we I'm not trying to brag but they just kind of figured that we was good influence and they let their 
children come out and spend two, three, four weeks out there and with us. And we, uh, we, we had some of them that come back years later and, and thanked us, and some of them became cow bosses and, and uh, you know, followed up with being on a ranch and uh, good hands, too. Yeah. Um, you know, some of that's them cool. The leather work that you Yeah, some of them became built saddles. We had one boy that was in trouble all the time. At, this is after we were moved to, to Strawberry, and I was there in Strawberry as a deputy sheriff and uh, trying to live up to. Bud Dunnigan's boots and be a law man like him. And uh, this kid was in trouble all the time, and his parents didn't know what to do with him. And they sat him down and asked him what he wanted to do. And I didn't know know the, the kid or the family very well. And he said, I want to be live with the Weeks and learn how to be a saddlemaker. So they did a little research, I guess, and came out <laughs> and talked to me. And so we we said, yeah, we have rules, but he can sure come live with us, and I'll do what I can. And he became a, a decent saddle maker and made a couple saddles and, for himself, and he is now a cow boss, I understand, on a big ranch out in a Lazy Bee ranch. Oh. But uh good good hand kind of kind of bronky at first you know he he uh he he got smart though after working for with some old timers and they kind of kind of thought about how the right way to keep weight on them cows instead of run them off he's only been with them about a year now and, and he went through the wagon and i understand now he's He's cow boss over there. Okay. Jeff cool. Lester is his name. Good kid. Well, I'm I'm sorry that I interrupted your train of thought. No, no problem. You, back when you left Winslow, um, how old were you when you got to Winslow? I was 17. I mean, 18, and that's when I got married. Uh, I was 18. My wife was 14, and, and that's where you guys moved met. her out on a ranch and. And uh, then I worked for Triangle V's. They've, that was Red Mark. Uh, you talked about horses. He had Laddie Buck, Badge 101, and cutting horses. Uh, Laddie Buck ended up being 11th, I think, in the nation that year. Uh, it was kind of amazing. I've never been around cutting horses. And I, other than just going in the herd and maybe cutting the pair out. But uh, when I went to work for Red, he asked me, he said, you ever cut a cow? And I said, well, sure. So he said, well, you get on. Which one was it, Badger? I don't remember. I think it was, I think it was Badger 101. He said, you get on her and, and turn back for me. He got on Laddie Buck, and I hit the ground first. I mean, she jumped right out from underneath me, and I hit the ground. <laughs> and uh, the next, I got back on, and I hit the ground twice that that session. Red, he just laughed. He thought that was that. So he had me breaking some colts, halter breaking some yearlings, and and uh, he called me up from. Florida or somewhere, he said, get the two years up, two year olds up and get them where they're running straight. They're going to the racetrack. He had Navajo King, which was pretty much of a thoroughbred, but quarter horse stud. And I says, okay, but they're awful young. They're just babies. He said, I want them where they'll run straight. I said, okay. So I had him going there about almost a month, and Red called me up and 
says, uh, there'll be a guy from Prescott Downs coming over and pick them horses, them colts up. They're going to go to the track. So they showed up with them colts, and we loaded them up and went to Prescott. And about two days later, Red called me up, cussing me out. He says, you dumb, dumb cowboy. And I said, what? <laughs> what? He said, I want them horses, them colts to run straight. I didn't want them making sliding stops. He, he said, them jockeys hit the dirt every one of them. What? <laughs> I thought the horse was running supposed to stop. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Red was quite a guy. He was a he was, uh, saddle maker from Nogales and a shirt factory. And he moved and bought this ranch, Triangle Bees. And moved to saddle shop and everything else. And his live in was Ann Rodeman, which was control and interest of kennel ration, dog food. And they also had about four sets of dry docks back there, back east, New Jersey somewhere. And Red was, he was married to. A Mexican gal from down in Mexico, and, and the story goes that Anne gave her five thousand dollars for a divorce. Red had a heart attack, and, and uh, Anne said she was gonna, if she was gonna live with him, she was gonna be able to bury him. So, anyhow, they got married, but they they were some kind of people. Red showed up from a trip, and he had. My wife, I told my wife, I said, look at that sucker over there. He's got a white cowboy hat on out here in Winslow where the dirt red and blows all the time. We looked and we laughed. And the next day I went out to do the chores. And I come back in wearing that white hat. Red gave me that white hat. And I wore that hat. For, that was only a $100 hat i ever seen. <laughs> But uh, Red was Red was somebody. I got hurt up there. I had a horse go over top of me. Went. He had a high bino that I broke, and good stout horse. We called him Ghost. And uh, Jack too was day working for us, and we was getting ready to go down on the river and gather our remnants. Bunch of cows got down in there. It was wild. Uh, so I went up, Jack and I went up there to Bob Dale truck with ghosts, and I was going to gather up some horses out of a trap up there we called Tucker Springs. And it had snowed a couple of days and froze colder and all get out. And I made a run at this one old horse, and I just, just roped him, and my horse either went snow blind or or what, but he just went over top of me and, and if it on a gravel road and if it wasn't been for Jack I'd have died there. They he picked mm. me up and hauled me in the hospital. I was in coma for three days and I broke my bunch of ribs and broke my jaw and my breastbone and and uh gosh. Pat McCullen was an old cowboy that Worked for Babbitts, and he had the spur camp, and he had a bunch of boys just wilder than a March hare. And uh, my wife stayed there at the hospital for two days, and she went back at the ranch because we had horses out there and stuff that we needed to take care of. It. And she pulled in there, and there was. Pat was just pulling out. He said that he left the boy there to take care of the chores. Everything's fine. And the wife went into the house there to check things out. She forgot she was making bread. When they called her and told her to get to the hospital, I was hurt. And two days of warm temperature, it smelled like a brewery in there. She had oh, yeast no. bread all over the counter and everything else. <laughs> all oh, was no. cold. But, uh, 
I have a thousand mess to clean up. Yeah. But anyhow, make go on with the story. I wasn't healing very good, and I was in Winslow, and Fred Aha, a big rancher and sheep people, bass people. I see Fred, and he said, "What's how you doing?" And I heard about your wreck. I said, "I was having a hard time breathing in the cold air and everything." He said, well, he says, you need to move down the valley or something. I said, well, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Three days later, I get a telephone call from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I said, would you please come down and sign some papers? We hear you need a job and you're a good trapper. We'll hire you as a government trapper. Well, I never trapped a coyote in my life until... I went to work with them, but they've stationed me down in in Yuma, and uh, I, I worked five years for them, trapping in the state of Arizona, and, and uh, so that wreck was bad enough that that you wouldn't I, be able to ranch for a while. Is that? Yeah, that I just wasn't healing good and. They offered me, you know, insurance and, and a job, and so boy, I took it. And we uh, we ended up being there winters months down in Welton, Mohawk Valley, and then the summer months we'd be up around Grand Canyon and, and Williams, and that really fit me good because I knew where all the ranchers up in that country. I had a had a you know. A, really a good deal and then i they stationed me in douglas and uh I got to be known around that country pretty good riding coats uh and jim wilburn had a coat i broke for him and then d's charlie d's i broke a couple horses for him the government wasn't paying very much, and I needed the extra money, so I was riding about everybody's coat in the country. And the under sheriff he sent me a coat. I went and rode that coat and brought him up there, and was talking to the sheriff, and and the sheriff said, "Why don't you go to work for me?" And I said, "Well, he said he offered me more money and, and everything, and." Same liberties of riding coats and stuff like that if I wanted, wanted to. So I looked at my wife and she said, Yeah, let's do it. I said, Okay. So she drove the government truck back to the house in Douglas from Bisbee and they gave me a keys for a, a car, a patrol car, and I going down Douglas and this car passed me flying. I mean, man, boy, he needs a ticket. So I turned on the spotlight, which was the red light, and he didn't pay no attention to me. He just kept on going, and I got right up there, and I looked around. There's a toggle switch there. It said siren. So I flipped that switch up, <laughs> and nothing. I said, man, what kind of outfit did I go work for? <laughs> and I got right outside that car and I hit the horn. The siren went off, scared me plumb to death. <laughs> he pulled over. He pulled over. I never rode a ticket in my life. I had to call the police officer from Douglas, which is just a couple miles away from him. He came out and showed me how to ride a ticket. <laughs> that was my not first. Funny. <laughs> that was my first. Well, not the first day. That was. That was my beginning. And then that night at dinner table, I get a telephone call that said that there was a family fight. I said, what, what, what do you want me to do? Well, get over there and break it up. I said, okay. So I got the address, and heck, that was my team roping partner. <laughs> so I run up there, and it was summertime. The screen door was shut, but you could see in. And there he was on top of her, slapping the daylights out of her. 
So I got in there and hollered his name and grabbed him around the neck and jerked him. We was wrestling around there and all of a sudden the lights went out. She hit me over the head with a skillet, knocked me out colder than the heck. She thought she I was did. To, she did. She thought I was trying to kill him, I guess. <laughs> Anyhow, he that was my first twenty four hours of being a cop and Wow. <laughs> but uh it was I spent what four years. Four years make stories. I had a lot of good stories there, but I come home one night and there was a car there and and I didn't recognize it. It was in my driveway. It was two o'clock in the morning, and at that time I was working smuggling detail with the customs, but I was with the sheriff's office. So I ran the license, and it was a rental car. So I come in the house with a gun drawn because I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I looked over there, and on the couch, the sound asleep was. No boy that I knew from the Grand Canyon, Jim Champy. Now, what in the world are you doing here? He said, well, I'm going to hire you. I said, hire me for what? He said, I want you to be the cow boss up there on, in Nevada on this ranch, Kawabi Cattle Company. And I said, well, I don't know. what." He said, we run steers. And they run right at eight to 10,000 head. It depends on the year they had. And within about seven hours later, I had a plane ticket and I flew up there and looked at the ranch. And I come back, told Terry to sell out. We're going to Nevada. So I turned in my resignation and and uh, we went to Nevada for out of Austin, Nevada there. And uh, we was there a couple of years. Is but, Terry uh, right there? Can she hear me? Yes. What? Go how ahead. did you how did you handle that, Carrie? Were you were you just really supportive of whatever he wanted to do? We we made a lot of moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like no, I always stood behind him. Um and sometimes it worked out okay and sometimes it didn't, but you know, he was a good cowboy and was known for breaking horses and whatnot. So he could always find another job. It wasn't, you know, we didn't ever go without a job. Let me back up a little bit there. When we first got married, wife would watch when I come in. If I went to the barn with an unsaddled, she'd start cooking dinner. And if I went to the pickup and unsaddled, she'd start packing the dishes. <laughs> I mean, I, we, I was, I was pretty hot-headed, hot-headed. <laughs> and if things didn't go right, the heck with it. I, I could go. Well, I did. I, uh, one ranch I worked over there on the Milky. Uh, I loaded up my stuff and and uh, started out. I said, "Where are we going?" I said, "I don't know. I guess we'll head down to Winslow." see who's hiring down that. Well, we only went three miles, and the neighbor rancher was there, and he said, Where are you? what's going on? I said, I quit. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, the boss said that I run that outfit like it was mine. And he said, it's not yours. And he said, that's good enough for me. She can just start unloading your stuff right there. And he hired me. We only went two miles on a dirt road. <laughs> to the next job, but everybody knew I could ride colts, and I would ride colts, and I I'm paying for it now. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. well pretty well stoned up now, but but uh, I got into saddle making because I figured someday that I would be in a wheelchair or or crippled up from a colt or something or another that. I wouldn't be able to get out and perform like I wanted to. Not need to be a, so I did. I became a saddle maker, and, and Shorty Yarbury helped me a bunch there. We took them old saddles and that Fred Harvey had, and 
and rebuild them and everything there. And then I started tooling leather, and, and I and I I had a saddle shop there in Strawberry for around 15 years and built saddles for cowboys. I didn't want to build barrel racing saddles, although I'd made a few of them, but uh, all I was interested in was putting a rigging in that will will stand the test and be comfortable after a nine-hour ride of horseback. And I sold I'm, all my orders were mainly working cowboys. And uh, cool. we raised two kids, one boy and one girl. But, uh, my boy, he followed my footprints pretty much. He worked at Bar T Bar, which I did too at one time. And uh, Bill Ogilvy was the cow boss manager. Ernest Tilson was the owner of the ranch. There was no better man than Ernest Tilson and Bill Ogilvy. They just they just didn't make it any better than those two. And Bill, I seen Bill in the little store one day. And he said, "Gosh, damn!" He said, "Can you get a couple months off and and come help me? I'm in a heck of a jackpot." He said, "We got work started, and I just can't get enough cowboys." I said, I can't, but I've got a 16-year-old boy that, that's pretty good hand. He said, where is he? He went down and talked to my boy at the house, and he rode his bed up and put a saddle in the truck and spent all summer out there. And he worked for Bill for about five years that way. And Dave was Bill's boy. He bought a ranch over in New Mexico, him and his wife, and run that outfit. And the boy pretty much worked for Dave off and on, off and on for 20 years. <laughs> but uh, law enforcement is uh, in Arizona is got at one time, I'd say probably 60% of the deputies were cowboys. And because of the same reason, they just needed insurance and, you know, needed a steady paycheck. And I yeah. went back, I went back into law enforcement, uh, after I left Nevada, I went to work in the feedlot and uh, down in Welton. I was in charge of all their horses and I rode their colts for them. And, uh, I was their main horseshoer. Frank McElhaney was the owner of that. It's sold now, but uh, I left there. I got tired of, of the feedlot, and I went back up north, and I ended back up into law enforcement, and I spent almost 15 years there in law enforcement, but I was day working and riding coats for everybody and, and uh, shoeing horses and had uh, bloodhounds and uh, I don't want Kelsey, Kelsey said something about you shoeing horses for five dollars a head. That's right. That when really I started, when I started shoeing horses. That was my price, five dollars, and I furnished the shoes. The shoes cost twenty-five cents a piece, wow. so that was a dollar. And then the nails were, you know, twenty cents. And, and but we got, I got five dollars a head. Wow! And uh, nowadays, I, I tell you what, I'm thinking about going back shoeing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think times have changed for the better or the worse? The worse. When I was in school, we we said a prayer. We said the, the allegiance, the flag. 
and it was an honor. The best students for the week got to post, raise the flag for the next week. That was a big honor. Nowadays, I've never seen them even take a flag down. Nobody takes care of them. Yeah. Uh, it, so I, I don't know. That's one thing I can be thankful for my great-grandkids. They're, they're horseback. They're ropers. Uh, they're, they got chores. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's just neat to see how they're being raised compared to other kids in the community. Yeah. What would your advice be to those kids growing up? Get out. Learn how to work. Do chores. Go to go to church. Join that. Join the FFA and 4H. And they got to work. I think years ago when I was my wife and I was 4H leaders and FFA advisors, they started giving. The county fairs, they give everybody a ribbon. Everybody. Everybody. No, that's not right. <laughs> and I, I, I see, I see the results of it now that they that they started that and they shouldn't have done it. I mean, uh, I was head of, I was president, state president of the high school. Rodeo Association there in Douglas, uh, and uh, them kids there. I mean, they they saddled their own horse, they brushed their own horse, they loaded their horse in the trailer. Mom and dad's maybe sitting there watching them, making sure they didn't get hurt. But they had to do, they had to work like my daughter when she was rodeoing. I told her, I says, you pay the entries. And I'll haul you, but I'm not paying you entries. If you want a rodeo, you go out and work and make the money to pay your entry fees. And my wife and I will haul you. And we did. And uh, we slept in an old camper shell in the back of a pickup, pulling an old ragged down old horse trailer. And, and uh, she had good horses to ride. Uh, we we mounted her and our son and and uh but uh they they earn their money and they know what responsibility and how it pays to get out and earn something. Nowadays the husband and wife has to work and they leave the T V to to be a babysitter and that's not right. But that's today. The ranches have changed. Uh, it isn't you know, done. It, the work is not done. Yeah. It's just, it's just not the same. Uh, every outfit that I ever, when I was a kid, they always had a few brood, brood mares and, and a stud, and they all raised their own colts. And, they had good horses and, you know, Babbitt ranches. I can remember, boy, they had some, they, they had tough, tough horses. They had the, uh, Clabber was their stud and he, he, he bucked and he, and he put buck in their coats. First time I went to Anita camp, I was probably, 10, 11, we went out there with Bud Dunning and we went out to, to see them and just check on, on the, because that was their bronc riding camp. And we drove up there and I looked up there and all of a sudden I seen half of a human being above the fence and back down. And that was, well, uh, um, Davy Branch. Branch. He was on a coat. And, uh, I mean, they, and then one year, I'll show you how, how tough them horses were. 
One year, the powwow there in Flagstaff needed some bucking horses. They got hold of Frank Banks. He was the cow boss and the manager. And Frank went out there and loaded up all the two-year-old fillies uh, and some of them old mares that were, had ring bone and brought them in there. The three-day road, powwow, there wasn't one road, not one horse. And bareback or saddle broke. They bucked, they bucked every Indian off there. They didn't. They didn't want any more Babbitt horses. Really? <laughs> yeah. They said that was enough of Babbitt horses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's raising like we're getting back kids. The way I was raised, I I'll never forget different times. I'd be down there at the cowboy dorm, and Frank Banks would come in buy groceries for a camp or, or just to visit. And he'd see me, what are you doing? Nothing. Says, your mom home? No. Is your dad home? Yeah. Is he asleep? I said, yeah. He said, here, write this note. I've got Tater and we'll be back in about a week. Frank Banks. And he'd sign it. I'd leave a note up there at the house and get my cowboy bed and my saddle and throw it in the truck. And I was only 12, 13 years old, and I'd be out there on the Babbitt Ranch at one of the camps for a week or so. And that, you know, you really learn a lot out with real cowboys. Yeah. You know? um, That's cool. What did your dad say when you got back? That's fine, as long as he knew where I was at. Oh. Well, it sounds but, like you've had a pretty, like a pretty cool life. A lot of different influences, you know, a lot of different. Yeah, I had. I don't think very many people get the opportunity to have that very many different life experiences. But you know, it takes it takes a family to make me be able to do what I did. But I hope that I hope I didn't bored you. No, you haven't for sure. I really love hearing all the stories. It's always it's always fun to get to know different people. Thank you again. You bet. Mm-hmm.